questions. We're going to be continuing our series. Last week we had a brief hiatus. Pastor Dave bravely stepped in on short notice as I was down for the count with the flu and served us in the preaching of the word. But we are returning again this morning to the book of Galatians and picking up where we left off. So we'll be looking at Galatians chapter 2 and beginning in verse 11. Now before we turn our attention there, because it's been a little bit, I'm going to pray here in a second. And then I want to spend some time just by way of review, kind of walking us through again where we've just come in this series. So first, let's bow our heads. Lord, we want to walk in step with the gospel. And as your people, we want our lives to be an accurate mirror, an accurate reflection of who you are, Lord, and all that you have done for us in Christ Jesus. And for that, Lord, we need your help. We need your help to understand your word, to understand the content of the gospel, and to understand specifically through your spirit what it looks like to live appropriately in light of the gospel. And, Lord, to understand what it looks like to fail to do that so that we can be warned. And God, we need your help. Your, your word, the pen of Paul this morning, will instruct us in that. So, God, I ask you would come, you'd fill this place with your spirit, you are always with us. Lord, we ask right now that you would give us discernment, that you would glorify the name of Christ in the preaching of your word, or that you would protect me from error, or that you would make clear the nature of the gospel, the nature of justification by faith, and then help us to grasp the significance of that truth, not just for conversion, but for every day of our lives as believers. So help us, God, and glorify your name. We want to see Jesus held high and lifted up and made much of at providence. Your spirit does that, and you do that through the preaching and receiving of the word. So we pray this in your name, Jesus, for your glory. Amen. Well, we are continuing our series in Galatians. So if you're a guest, I'm going to give us a brief overview, but also for the whole church, because we took... A week off last Sunday, I don't want to assume that everybody remembers perfectly where we are. If you recall, Paul's labor up to this point has been to demonstrate the purity and the accuracy of his gospel. And so he's been working to show that his ministry and his apostleship are legit. Remember that? He's been working to show that his message is accurate. He, he didn't make up his gospel message, that his, his message is the same as the other apostles, but he's also not implying that he's borrowed his message from the other apostles. He's not a second-hander. He's not a second-hand apostle. This isn't a borrowed ministry. Paul has affirmed and argued and set before us in chapter 1 that this message is from God, that he received his commission as a minister of the gospel, as an apostle from Christ on the Damascus Road, and that he received the message from God through a revelation, just like the other apostles did as well. Now, the truth was substantiated, remember, back by the bigwigs in Jerusalem. Last week we saw that even though Paul didn't come from them and didn't rely on them for his message, that those pillars of the faith, men like Peter and James and John back in Jerusalem, when Paul went to them after 14 years and they sat down and compared notes, both sides walked away and said, we have the same gospel. We share the same message. Remember that last couple weeks ago? And they said they extended the right hand of fellowship to Paul. Which was to say that for Paul, once he was sure that the truth was the same and truth had been established, he was happy to move forward in unity with those other members. And so remember we said that truth trumps. Truth is primary. You have to establish truth first before you can move on and fight for unity. But that when truth has been established and truth is defended and truth is loved, it will move out into unity. That's what we saw a few weeks ago. The apostolic foundation of the early church was not fractured in any way. They, they were unified because of the truth of the gospel. Now today, Paul describes another visit. A couple of weeks ago we saw his visit to Jerusalem where all that was affirmed. Today we look at another visit where Paul describes a visit in Antioch. And this one doesn't end as pretty. It's not as neat and clean and beautiful as the one in Jerusalem. It's still an extension of the truth from last week, and that being truth trumps unity. And only once truth has been established and defended can it lead to unity. But today, 
we see that Paul's gospel is so independent. Its message is so divine that even when Jerusalem apostles depart from it, so even when the pillars of the faith, these men who walked with Jesus, depart from Paul's message, they find themselves under its rebuke and under its authority. So look with me now to Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 to 16. I apologize, there's no PowerPoint this morning. We had a little technical snafu. Look with me at verse 11. Speaking of this second visit now, after the one to Jerusalem, Paul says, But when Cephas, that is Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Did you get all that? We'll spend time there. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet, when we know that a person is not, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. That's where we are this morning. You can see very clearly and very early on the stark contrast between the two visits, right? The trip in Jerusalem, Paul describes as they extended the right hand of fellowship to him. In other words, they said, our message is the same. The the truth is established. Let's extend the hand of unity. Now, these two visits didn't happen temporally back to back. There's, There's a time gap in between, but as you're reading here, In Galatians, it seems pretty sudden. You read along and you hear Paul talking about Peter joining hands for the purpose of gospel ministry. There's unity. They extend the right hand of fellowship and they say, hey, just remember the poor. That's how verse 10 ends, right? Oh, great. The early church is united. It's not like the church today where where there's fractures and there's there's people divided over issues, right? Then you read verse 11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. It's a, it's a pretty startling contrast. And we're actually going to work our way back this morning, which I mean to say we're going to actually go to the very end of the text and then jump back to the beginning. And the reason for that is our text has some unnatural breaks in it. There's a spot where verse 14 ends, but Paul isn't quite finished with his thought about Jewish and Gentile relations and what's worked up in that. And so we're actually going to carry it through, as we read, through verse 16. But we also don't want to leave verses 15 and 16 just with today's passage. So we're going to pick them up again next week. And the reason for that is there's just a massive truth sitting there in verse 16. And it's really the gospel thesis of this letter. And verse 16 is such a massive truth that we couldn't ever exhaust it anyway. So there's no problem in picking it up in a couple messages. And so I'm going to actually start there and then work our way back. And the reason for that is because this second visit that Paul's describing in Antioch, where Paul says Peter and Barnabas and the others were, Paul describes them as living out of step with the gospel. That's a pretty heavy indictment, right? Well, if we're going to look at verses 11 to 14 and consider What does it mean to live out of step with the gospel? It just seems to make sense to me that we pull verse 16 into it and initiate this morning by considering what is the gospel that Paul's talking about, that they would be living out of step with. So to that end, we're going to start with verse 16. We're going to lay a gospel foundation. So Paul writes this, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus. Why? In order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Now, that is a massively significant theological proposition. It's 
all about the centrality of justification by faith to the gospel and to Paul's entire argument in this letter and actually to Paul's entire ministry. That, that verse right there is, is central to Christianity itself. That's how significant it is. And so our first point this morning is just laying that gospel foundation to spend some time, not exhaustively, we'll spend more time next week, but to spend some time looking at that and considering what, is, what does that mean and then later this morning considering what does it then mean to live out of step with that gospel. So to verse 16. Paul is saying here that the covenantal status of Jews doesn't save. And some of you are like, okay, yeah, okay, covenantal status of Jews doesn't save. That's a massive thing. For thousands of years, the Jewish people have operated under the mindset of, if you want to be saved, you have to be a part of God's people. And to be a part of God's people meant you had to be a Jew. So Paul has basically completely changed the game here. He's said, you know, for thousands of years, the prophets before me, guys like Abraham and Moses, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, the minor prophets, they've said being a Jew matters. They said these, these laws that God have given matters. And if you want to be part of God's people, if you want to be saved, you want to know His covenant blessings, you want to receive the promises of God, then you have to be a Jew. So when Paul says here in verse 16 that all that Jewishness doesn't justify, that's a massive thing. What he's saying is salvation isn't gained by doing, but by believing. Salvation isn't gained by doing, but by believing. Now, I'm not saying that in the Old Testament they thought salvation was gained by doing and not believing Rightly understood, the Old Testament teaches salvation by faith. But Paul is making a point here. and He's saying there's a receptivity and an emptiness to faith. When you come in faith, you come with nothing in your hands. It's faith and nothing else. Paul is saying you will never be moral enough. You will never be ethical enough. You will never be good enough. You will never have enough devotions and enough quiet times and you will never come to church enough on Sundays and you will never evangelize enough to merit salvation. There's no good thing you can hope to add to the equation of why you're accepted by God. Absolutely nothing. Only Jesus. Now, this message is the foundational message that drives Christianity. This proneness to works and get good enough theology is where people live and breathe though, right? As foundational as verse 16 is to Christianity, and it is foundational, Luther correctly said, on this doctrine, justification by faith, the church stands or falls. In other words, you get this doctrine wrong and the church is wrong. And Christianity that you're believing in is wrong. That's how significant this doctrine is. As significant as that is, though, that's not where we live. And that's not where we're inclined to find and seek our favor with God. We ooze self-justification. Right? We implicitly live there. We implicitly try and curry favor with God according to our relative goodness. People want to think Every person, I don't care who you are, I'm more good than I am bad. You know, I, I, I'm sinful, they might say, you know, I, there, there's depravity, but, but I'm also good. Now, hopefully we don't say that, we don't articulate, hopefully our theology is better than that, but sometimes our hearts don't follow our theology. And in our heart, there's that place that wants to say, if I'm good enough, God will keep loving me. That's how we operate. And it's universal. This idea that you have to get good enough to be accepted by God, it knows no cultural, no ethnic, no religious boundaries. You want to know if a religion is man-made? You want to know if this is man's attempt to figure out God and, and not divine, not real? 
Well, it will promote works as a source of salvation. From Islam to Mormonism to Buddhism to Hinduism, you name the religion in some way, shape, or form. It's taking a side. It's, it's, it's taking a form of this idea that I'm going to be good enough for God. My best friend, my best man, has been working for years in a place called Dharamsala, India. And there's thousands of Tibetan monks that live there. And he just described it. He said, karma is king there. You know what karma is, he told me? Karma is just works righteousness. Karma is, I have to do this so that this will happen. And if this happens and it was bad, it was because I did this thing that was wrong. Just another way of saying, I'm going to get right. There's going to be future blessings that happen because I do the right things now. I'm going to build up enough good karma so that I get good karma later. That's just the Buddhist version of works righteousness. That's their version of circumcision and kosher laws. We operate that way. It's a universal human condition. And as we see here, it can infect Christians as well. I'll never forget, it was just a few weeks ago, I was sitting at the gym, and it was one of those kind of bizarre conversations where there was a trainer next to me, and he was working out an older gentleman. Um, And this is a guy that I have played basketball with, and he can get a little fired up at times. And he's he's an older guy. He's probably around 50, and he he can get a little... So, sorry, Daryl. He's a, he's a young guy. He's he's got he's got a lot left in the tank. <laughs> so he's young at heart, and <laughs> he, he's he's working out with a trainer. And this trainer I know is a believer, and and they're having just one of those just incredible conversations where I'm I'm lifting next to him, and it's just you're just sitting there listening. This is amazing, and they're they're talking about depravity. And this, this trainer with his client is, is talking about depravity and explaining his beliefs on, on sin and going on. It was just really cool to listen to, and I'm praying for him. And I'll never forget, so this, this guy, yeah, yeah, no, no, the world's evil, people are evil, I'm evil. But, then, but you know, I'm, a, I'm pretty good, he says. And, and then he starts making the argument, you know, in relation to his son. And, you know, he's your classic dad, he's talking up his son, like, yeah, my son's a good kid, you know. I know he's, you know, because they've been having this conversation about depravity, and he doesn't feel like he can any longer say that his son is just a great kid. He's like, you know, I know my son's got his issues and he's got some things. But he said, it's just this, I don't even know, how, how, do, you, how do you categorize this? He said, you know, my son, he's, he's 80% good. <laughs> he's 80% good? Like I'm sitting there on the bench thinking, what, what's the statistical analysis that he did to figure out, my, son, my son's 80% good. Like I, I know he's not perfect, but 80%. I'm pretty sure 80% good. So his idea was he's essentially saying, my son's good to go. My son will go to heaven. He's, he's 80% there. Now, aside from just the ridiculousness of the comment of somehow knowing that his son was 80% good or not, it was just a classic example. We operate. We live in that reality. We want to think. We want others to think. I'm doing enough. Even Christians who know the gospel, who know the truth of Christ dying on the cross for sin, of the necessity of Jesus dying to save us, we still have that inclination to say, yes, Jesus died, and I have to believe in Jesus. I have to trust in Jesus. But I also have to do this. Or, yes, I believe in Jesus. But man, I've got to hop in my step today. Because I had my devotions. So I know God loves me a little bit more today. That's a living out of verse 16. Of works righteousness. And we live there. And it's against this proclivity to work, improve, and merit salvation that Paul places the gospel. No works of the law ever justify, he says. It's only faith in Christ. Now, faith is not just mental assent. Paul is saying this faith in Christ, it's an embracing, a relying on, a depending upon God. It's giving ourselves to Him. Faith is being satisfied for all God is. 
and all God is for us in Jesus. So trusting my soul and well-being and future hope to that Savior. And Paul says, to nothing else. It's not, I'm saved because I believe in Jesus and I attend the right church. Right? It's not, I'm saved because I believe in Jesus and I vote the right way. You can think of a million other examples. That is not what the gospel is. The second we try to add something other than Jesus to salvation, the entire equation falls apart. No person is justified by works of the law. Paul says it three times. When I mean, you read verse 16, and it, I mean, it's almost a hard verse to memorize in its entirety because it's kind of circling back and forth on this same truth from all these different angles. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we have also believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. You think Paul cares that we get the point? Works of the law will not justify you. It's of no avail to you. Doing the right thing won't make you right with God because you can't do enough of the right thing. The scale will always be balanced against you. Even, let's just assume, let's just assume the guy in the gym was right and his son is 80% good. 80% good. The problem is, before a holy God, nothing but 100% good counts. The sight of sin can't be in God's presence. But we don't want to live that way. And we don't want to think that way. Paul says it emphatically three times. By faith, not by works. Now, to understand this, we need to grasp what he means by justified. We'll spend time next week really detailing the ins and outs of justification. But I want to briefly point us there, just to give a summary today. Justification is a legal term. It's, it's a forensic term. It's, it's a law court term. And it means you're declared righteous. To be justified means you stand before God, and it's not, I'm justified because I stand before God and I'm 80% good. To be justified means you stand before God and God looks at you and says, you're 100% good. You've never had an evil thought. You've never done a single thing wrong. Not for one second have you ever strayed from my moral perfection, God says. That's what happens when God declares you justified. That's what he's saying about you. Now, none of us is that, right? No. There is evidence against you, but justification means that because of faith, God doesn't count that evidence against us. He sets it aside, and because of faith, when he looks at us and says, justified, he's saying justified because he's looking at us and he's seeing Jesus. And he looks at us and he says, favorable verdict. You will know my affection. You will know my covenant blessings. You will know eternity in my presence with fullness of joy because you're justified. Because Jesus perfectly obeyed on your behalf. Because Jesus perfectly paid the price for all your injustice. That's what justification means. Now, the gospel declares sinners to be right with God. Which the Old Testament says is wrong. Time and time again, right? If you read the Old Testament, read the Psalms. Who is justified? The righteous. The righteous will be vindicated. The righteous will be justified. The righteous will be saved, right? And the Gospel says the exact opposite. The sinner will be saved, will be justified. Because the righteous one Jesus has taken his sin. That's the equation of the gospel. That's what's happening here. It's, it's changing how we understand things. Now, Paul is quick to counter. By works of the law, no person is justified. That's good news because Jesus' death on our behalf, his righteousness, is now our hope. He's, he's freeing us from this idea that there's moral obligation. Some of us live in this diluted reality of, 
I actually am doing enough good to get right with God. That's the 80% 20, right? I'm 80% good. I've done enough to get right with God. And then there's other people who have a more honest evaluation of themselves and realize I'm not good enough. Not nearly good enough. And without the gospel, that just sits on your shoulder like a million tons of condemnation. And in Christ, that condemnation and that penalty and that shame is removed. And Jesus takes it off of our back and places it on Himself. To be vindicated before God requires perfect obedience, not just in our actions, but in our intentions, in unspoken desires, in our inclinations. So no one, Paul says, gets justified on their own merits. Justification happens only through faith, only through Christ's imputation. Now, we're going to spend time next week, and in this next section, Paul details more about what that looks like. So we haven't exhausted that. I know we haven't exhausted it. But I think that's sufficient for us to get a grasp now for the foundation that Paul is laying here. This is the gospel. And when he talks about being out of step with the gospel, that's what he's talking about. You're talking about being out of step with that glorious truth. So the key phrase this morning then is in verse 14. Paul says, But when I saw that their conduct, he's talking about Peter and Barnabas and these men who've come from James, was not in step with the truth of the gospel. I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Now, the key phrase is conduct not in step with the truth of the gospel. And that has huge implications. What we do doesn't save us. It's Jesus and nothing else. But that doesn't mean that how we live is irrelevant. There's... A way to live, Paul says, that's in step with the truth of the gospel. And there's a way to live that's not in step with the truth of the gospel. In other words, the gospel directs not just what we believe, but what we do. Salvation, remember, is all believing and no doing. That's how you're saved. Salvation is believing. It's not about doing the right thing. Paul's not changing that. But real salvation, real believing, will have real effects on our living. These actions don't save us. But there are both beliefs and activities that are out of step with the gospel. There are ways we can live as Christians that are not in step with the truth of the gospel. So, some will hear that and think, boy, he just spent the first half talking about justification by works, and now I feel like he's just impelling me towards works. Well, yes, but not in the justifying sense. There is a place for good works in the New Testament. There is a place for holy living in the Bible. There's all sorts of imperatives in Scripture, right? Do this, don't do this. The problem is we take these imperatives that are supposed to result from the fact that we're saved and try and make them the reason that we're saved. That's the difference. Don't make the mistake of saying, well, it's justification by faith, not by works. Works are irrelevant. You can do whatever you want. I believe in Jesus. I prayed a prayer. That is not Paul's gospel. Paul isn't saying the works get you right with God, but he is saying if you believe, if you trust, if you entrust yourself to God and all that He is for you in Jesus, it will change you. It will affect you. There will be works that are evidence of this. There are ways we can live as Christians that are in step with the truth of the gospel. What Paul is doing is not changing the gospel. He's extending it. Here's what I mean. The gospel doesn't just affect how I am saved. It affects how I live in light of the fact that I am saved. The gospel doesn't just get me good with God. It reorientates my entire way of living in light of the fact that faith in Christ has made me good with God. Because of Christ, because I believe in Christ, because of the justification that I have before God, that He looks upon me favorably because of Jesus Christ. Because of all that, I want to go and I want to live differently. Not because I'm going to have to come back into the courtroom and say, you're still okay with me, right, God, because now I did all these things? No, not because of that. Because the courtroom is a once-forever deal. 
He looks at me and says, you've trusted in Christ. You are justified before me. The Spirit now has the seal of that. He bears witness with us. Abba, Father, you're, you're a son of God. And now that same Spirit that seals us changes us. And there's ways we live in light of that. There's a fundamental question, Paul says, every question should consistently be asking. Are my actions out of step with the gospel? Is the way I'm living my life out of whack with what I profess to believe? Does the way I live contradict the gospel? Does my life profane my confession? How we live doesn't save us, but if we're saved, it should affect how we live. We never move beyond the gospel. Hear that? We never move beyond the gospel. Part of the problem with folks who don't want to talk about holy living and holiness and and this idea that you can have conduct out of step with the gospel, is that they've got this truncated idea of what the gospel is. The gospel is this justification by faith thing that happens at the beginning of your Christian life. It happens at conversion. The Spirit regenerates you. Scales fall away. Now I believe. I turn to Christ. That's when the, the gospel happens. Now I'm justified. And now maturity means I take that, and it's really good, and I always want to believe it and think it's real, but I, I take it, and, oh, justification by faith. Okay, good, I got it. Maybe spent the first couple months of my Christian life understanding it. And now I take it, and I set it aside. And now I move over here into these other weightier things of the Christian life. And Paul says to Peter, after, we're decades into the early church now. I mean, Peter's been a believer for decades now. And he says, Peter, that thing you set aside, hey, bro, you got to bring it back and make it central again. Your conduct is out of step with the gospel. In other words, the gospel is not just this thing that happens at the beginning of your walk. The gospel is the thing that is the center of the entire thing. The gospel is the sun of your solar system of salvation. You're just constantly orbiting around the gospel. It's not like a rocket. You, you took off. The gospel was the platform at Cape Canaveral and you took off and, and now you're on your flight, and yeah, back then, you remember that was the gospel, and now I'm in my flight. No, the gospel is the sun, and you, you're just orbiting around it for all eternity. I, lo- I love how Martin Luther puts this. Martin Luther was really big on this whole gospel justification by faith thing. Particularly when you hear an immature and unripe saint trumpet that he knows very well that we must be saved by the grace of God without our own works. And then pretend that this is a snap for him. Well, then have no doubt that he has no idea of what he is talking about and probably will never find out. For this is not an art that can be completely learned or of which anyone could boast that he is a master. It is an art that will always have us as pupils while it remains the master. And all of those who understand it and practice it do not boast that they can do everything. On the contrary, they sense it like a wonderful taste or odor that they greatly desire and pursue, and they are amazed that they cannot grasp it or comprehend it as they would like. They hunger and thirst and yearn for it more and more, and they never tire of hearing about it or dealing with it. Just as St. Paul himself confessed that he had not yet obtained it. Philippians 3.12 That's convicting. That's what Paul is saying here. You you think you've left it behind. But the way you're living is out of step with the gospel. The way you're living is showing you haven't come close to mastering it. It's not affecting your life the way that it should. There's utterly no moving beyond the gospel. Every Christian who's ever lived has faced this temptation to step out from underneath the covering of the gospel after conversion. It is a revolutionary shift that has to take place. It helps us to realize... I need a Savior. It's not 80% good. That's not good enough. I need a Savior. I can't work my way to God. But it's also a revolutionary way of thinking that we face constant temptation that somehow we'll move beyond this. 
Christian maturity happens with deeper stuff than the gospel. Luther's right. If you think you've exhausted the gospel, or that you're proficient enough in your grasp of it, or that now it's time to move on to bigger and better things, all you're doing is proving that you've never truly grasped the gospel to begin with. And it's thinking like this that leads us into lives that are out of step with the gospel. Now, I say all of that by way of concluding with two points from the text that hopefully serve as application springboards for us. I think there's two examples in our text of what it looks like to live out of step with the gospel. Now, the list isn't exhaustive, but when Paul confronts Peter for being out of step with the gospel, he does have specifics in mind. This list, in other words, isn't the only thing it means to be out of step with the gospel. There's other things. But in our text, there's two that are highlighted. So I want to spend the remainder of the day touching on those. Read with me in verse 11 again. But when Cephas, Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Then he goes on to say that he had seen that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. First thing that's not in step with the truth of the gospel Paul shows us, is fear. Peter, Paul uses, I mean, it's, it's a really skillful way he does it. He uses a story, he uses a narrative to make his point. He tells the story of what's happening. Peter, you see, is regularly eating with Gentiles in Antioch. Antioch is this really wealthy city in the Roman world. It's the center for trade. And so you've got this church that's just, just blowing up. I mean, there's... There's a revival. You can't even really say it's a revival because the gospel's coming there for the first time. There's just an explosion of conversions happening in Antioch. And so these Gentiles, which is just a Jewish word for saying these pagans, are coming to know Christ in massive numbers. And Peter is there in Antioch with them. And, he, and here's the crazy thing. He has no qualms about eating and sharing table fellowship with them. He, he doesn't care that he's eating non-kosher foods. Now, most of us probably love bacon, so that doesn't seem like a big deal. But to Peter, and to the early church, and to somebody who's been a Jew their entire life, and for 2,000 years hasn't eaten bacon because God said, thou shalt not eat bacon, it is a big deal. That's what Peter's doing. He's given up following Old Testament food laws. He's eating things that were forbidden for centuries. And this would have been scandalous stuff for Jews back in Jerusalem. You think of the Jerusalem church now. And they're, they're, they're pushing against millennia of tradition and Jewishness. And they're already being called these crazy heretics, these Jesus followers. And now it gets back that Peter, the big man, their pillar, Peter, the guy who Jesus said, hey, you're going to be the leader taking this forward. He's over in Antioch and he's having pork chops. It's huge. The Jew, you know the Jews in Jerusalem are coming back, James and John. Whoa! We, we, knew you guys were, we knew you guys were false. We knew you had a false religion. And Peter's just proven it. Who is he to throw away 2,000 years of God's word and tradition? Well, Jews don't dine with non-Jews. To engage in table fellowship with Gentiles is simply unheard of. But Peter's doing it. He's doing it with a clear conscience. Enter men from Jerusalem. So the word's gotten back, right? James sends out a delegation. Now, we don't know what James thinks. It doesn't say whether James is in agreement with these men. It, the text doesn't say that. It might be that these men from Jerusalem are, are coming with just, they've heard rumors, and James just wants to get the, get the story straight. He sends a party out. Maybe these guys aren't as nuanced as James wants them to be, and they, they get the message wrong. We don't know. Anyway, these men come from James, from Jerusalem, and evidently they confront Peter about eating non-kosher. 
They confront Peter about all his bacon-wrapped appetizers. And Peter withdraws from table fellowship. Now, here's what that means. In the ancient world, you don't have the ability to prepare two kinds of meals. You don't have microwaves. You don't have Papa Murphy's. You don't have Jimmy John's. There's just no ability. When you prepare a meal, you prepare one kind of food. You prepare the meal, and then you invite a guest over to share it with you. And it's a huge deal. To invite somebody to your table is to say, you're with me. You're, you're my friend. You're under my roof. You're practically a part of my family. So when Peter says, I won't eat with you anymore, Peter's at a crossroads. He has to decide, am I going to give in to this pressure, this temptation from this Jerusalem party to say, Peter, you can't eat those kosher things. You can't be with these people who aren't Jews, even if they love Jesus. Or is Peter going to live out the conviction that he had in Acts 10? Remember the story in Acts 10 with Cornelius? A vision. I mean, Peter's scandalized by this vision, this dream of all these unclean things just pouring out of heaven. And so there's lobsters just coming at him. And he, he's sitting there in the dream like, what is going on? Stop! Stop! Don't, don't let this happen. And a voice from heaven, possibly Jesus, it just says a voice from heaven, says, what God has made clean, do not call common. And Peter goes to Cornelius, finds these Gentiles, these non-Jews, and they love Jesus. They believed in Jesus. And he says to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone of another nation. It is unlawful for me even to visit you, much less to eat the food at your table. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. When Paul says Peter stood condemned, I think he means he stands condemned by his own words. You know, Peter, you had the vision. You came back to us and told us about the authenticity of Cornelius' faith. That non-Jews are believing in the Messiah. And the Jerusalem church all of a sudden is floored and goes back and reads Genesis and says, oh yeah, I guess it does say that through Abraham all the nations will be blessed. It's right. Well, Peter's at a crossroads. Here's this pressure. You can't do these things, but he knows he can. Well, he, he caves. He gives in. And the reason Paul gives, what does Paul say it is? Why does he cave? Because he fears the circumcision party. Now, when Peter breaks table fellowship, it's tantamount to saying to these Gentile Christians, you're subservient. To force them to eat this kind of food or to quit eating with them underscores that Peter is now saying, you know, I was eating with you, but I was wrong. And since I won't eat with you, I in effect think you're somehow less than Christian. He goes from eating to separation because of fear. Paul says, to live in fear in that way, to act out of fear, is not in step with the gospel. In 2 Timothy 1.7, he says, For God gave us a spirit, what? Not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Fear, Paul says, decisions made from fear are out of step with the truth of the gospel. And here's why. Fear is only operating where faith does not. Psalm 27.1 The Lord is my light and my salvation. You hear the salvation context there? The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? I don't think Peter is sitting there thinking, I really have to make sure these Gentiles are now circumcised. What I think he's doing is fearing them. He's just fearing what they think. His theology hasn't changed. He's just living out the fact that he lives in utter fear of what they're going to say about them. And to live in fear in that way, to, to do that is to walk out of step with the gospel a dangerous charge Peter lays 
Paul lays against Peter. And I think it's a temptation we can probably all relate to. The second thing that's not in step with the gospel is the last one, is hypocrisy. Verse 13, he says, And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with them, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Peter sinned, and Paul says he stands condemned for his actions. And his position as a leader means that many others get led into sin with him. Now, there's a lot we could even just say here about leaders and and feet of clay, not worshiping leaders. They all have their areas of weakness and their failures. But Paul goes on to say, even Barnabas is led astray. Now, this is a painful thing for Paul. You remember who Barnabas is? Barnabas is Paul's partner in gospel ministry. Barnabas is Paul's partner in ministry to who? The Gentiles. And even Barnabas has pulled away from the group that he felt commissioned and called to bring the gospel to. That's how serious it is. And Paul looks at it and he says, it's hypocrisy. So in other words, what Paul is saying is, according to the text, Peter and Paul and Barnabas still agree theologically. Peter and Barnabas might not be eating with the Gentiles, but they still know the gospel should go to the Gentiles. They still know justification is by faith, it's not by works. The problem here is, you know, it's out of step with the gospel. They know this and they act in this way. They act, out of, they act out of step with their convictions. And hypocrisy means just that. It means you're living contrary to what you believe. Peter's withdrawal from table fellowship with the Gentiles isn't due to theological conviction. Paul says he drew back because of fear. But this makes the actions even worse. Peter and Barnabas knew better. In their heart of hearts, they knew It didn't matter. And they did it anyway. And the connection between fear and hypocrisy is pretty obvious. We live against our convictions when we fear and when we lack faith. Knowing the truth, Peter withdrew from believers and treated them like they were unbelievers because he feared man more than he feared God. Psalm 56.3 says this, When I am afraid, I will put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise. In God, I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? Peter was essentially reading that verse, saying, I don't put my trust in your word. I don't put my trust in you, God. What can flesh do to me? They can do a whole lot. They can say bad things about me. They can not give me the promotion. They could fire me. But what are the contexts of things that we think where we're tempted to compromise what we believe, what we know to be true, because we fear? Now, who hasn't been fearful or guilty of that, right? Everyone has to raise their hand. Peter's feet of clay is a sweeping reminder that we all face temptations. And at times we'll all fail. And it's a reminder that in living out of step with the gospel, we're reminded, I never move beyond my need for the gospel. But here's what I love about Peter. So he's screwed up again, right? You got the guy who denies Jesus three times, fear. Here he is in Antioch, the circumcision party, the Jews from Jerusalem come out, pulls away from Gentiles, treats them as unbelievers, fear, hypocrisy, the grace of God is bigger. Listen to what he writes in 1 Peter 3. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience. So that when you are slandered, not if, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Here's the gospel connection. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that 
he might bring us to God. You never walk beyond the gospel. You never move beyond its goodness. You never move beyond its necessity. There are ways to live in light of the gospel. And there are ways where we stumble and live and walk out of step with the gospel. But the good news is Christ suffered once for sins. The righteous for the unrighteous. That he might eternally bring us to God. Would you bow your heads? Lord, I pray that you would be with us in these next weeks as we continue to work our way through the truth and the reality of your word. And specifically, what your word says about the gospel and what your word says about our only hope of standing before you. That we're justified by faith in Christ. Lord, we need, we need fresh eyes to see this. Many of us have heard this mantra, justified by faith, for years. And all of us are tempted to step away from the gospel. All of us are tempted to walk out of step with the gospel. So Lord, would you help us today, this week, throughout this series, through the rest of our lives. Help us to humbly understand, to humbly realize and see our need for the gospel. Let us be, like Luther described, people who are hungry and thirsty for it. And Lord, we thank you for your grace to change. That Peter is an example to us. That even where we falter, even where we've given in to fear, even where we've been hypocrites and lived out of step with what we know to be true, there is grace to forgive and grace to change. Praise in your name, Jesus. Amen.